happening now. We want to welcome our listeners from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in fabulous Missoula, Montana. Um, Dr. Wes Fryer is on assignment tonight, so he'll not be able to join us. And so we're lucky enough to be joined tonight by Assistant Professor of Instructional Technology, Martin Horatio from the University of Montana. Good evening, Dr. Horatio. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing well. I am awesome, thank you. And I should also note, um, if I seem sheepish or unwilling to challenge Martin anything tonight, it's because he's my doctoral chair. So um, if you have any you know, awkward comments about um, you know, my inefficiencies as a technology expert, you can address your complaints to him tonight, um, <laughs> YouTube chat room. So um, let's see. We've got a lot of interesting articles tonight, um, and I, I kind of picked a couple specifically because Martin was going to be in the room tonight, and uh, I think we should go ahead and just start off with the, the big topic of, uh, or I think a big topic right now in schools. There was a really excellent New York Times article um, last month, and I double-checked to make sure that this is actually uh, not been covered in the podcast. I wasn't in most episodes in uh, March um, of this year, and it's whether or not um, Apple um, can stay relevant in schools. Um, Apple's devices lose luster in American classrooms is a headline. And Tasha Singer writes um, about the growing trend of um, Apple losing ground to seemingly other platforms. And there's uh, some interesting statistics there. Basically, since 2012, Google's gone from having zero uh, hardware devices in classrooms to, in 2016, selling just under 8 million um, devices uh, with Google branding, assuming that's mostly Chromebooks there. Um, during that time period, Microsoft has gone um, from being in the low two millions to the kind of middle two millions. And Apple, which enjoyed a surge two or three years ago, um, seemingly that was related to mobile devices like iPads, um, in the last four years has started to wane a bit and is now um, at levels that it that is not seen um, since before the introduction of the iPad in 2010. And so obviously uh, there's some trends going on here. And so I thought maybe we could start here tonight. Um, first, Martin, um, what so what, what would you attribute the loss of ground for Apple in classrooms? Well, I, I would think it's it's probably threefold. The biggest, I would assume, has to do with Apple's inability to kind of capture the enterprise market, the ability to have um, sort of a central control of the device, uh, move away a little bit from the demand for it to be a one-to-one -one device. Um, and I think that <clears throat> that's enough that it turns away some of the potential buyers. You know, as you know, a lot of times when you attend trade conferences, you're you're divided up into groups who um, are just, just you know, kicking tires, looking around. There are those who can influence decisions, and then there are those who make the decisions. You get treated differently depending on, say, what your badge says. Well, those that make the decisions are looking for certain criteria, and those criteria tend to include the ability, let's say, for a, a device in school to control it somehow not just turn it over to the student. And Apple has gone through several iterations of that, but that to me is the elephant in the room. You can't uh, use, um, you know, some, some simple server mechanism to take over all of the devices. Uh, I think Apple could have managed that easily, and for some reason they didn't. Um, I don't think that belongs 
anywhere near an iPhone, but uh, a school-based iPad, absolutely. The second thing is price. And I think that Apple, uh, I I don't want to argue Apple tax or Apple premium or some of the other ways that people often describe the extra cost because I I just don't believe Apple produces a poor quality product. And uh, as you know, there's there's kind of what's called the Walmart effect where people – you know, buy a hundred dollar lawnmower and it only lasts one season. And they're like, okay, it only lasted a season because I only paid a hundred bucks and that's somehow okay. And they buy another. Apple has never done that. They, they, they really don't like producing low end stuff. So everything, the hardware, uh, and the software is, is as top notch as they can make it. So going back to the price, I think that they could have done the move that they did recently with the the basically school-oriented price drop in iPad cost five, eight years ago, something like that. Well, let's see, what do we got? Eight years ago is when it was released, so maybe seven years ago. Um, and I think that the cost just, it really, when you start looking at the numbers, puts off um, potential buyers. And frankly, I think the third is that many um, many folks in instructional technology don't quite know what a tablet should do or how it will be used. And that um, sort of nebulous use mechanism allows other things to enter the equation that if maybe very specific apps or an interface or assistive technology or things like that were specified, then the iPad might rise to the top. But if you're thinking, well, we kind of need to surf the web, kind of need to be able to type some stuff, maybe take pictures, make movies, you know, there's, I'm surprised my Kindle can't do that by now. You know, so one of the problems is if you just lay out a few hand, a few baseline specs, lots of potential tablets enter the market, and then you can choose a much lower cost one. I think there's been no success with that to the point that I believe Google's probably getting out of the tablet business. But it did open up enough confusion that people started looking around. Right. And that was, I believe, Apple's a, a very significant mistake for Apple is they just let that left that door open, and obviously Microsoft is wandering in now. Google wandered in. Uh, Sony gave it a good shot. HP gave it a good shot. Um, but with that confusion means that the loyalty towards the iPad was diluted and therefore you end up with where we are right now. Right. right. Well, let's, let's, let's break a couple of those down for a second. So first, when you talk about the lack of management capability for, for iPads, um, I, I, I guess for me, I, I've never had to manage iPads before. And in fact, I've always seen my iPads being more of a personal device. Like I, I seem to have a closer relationship with my iPad than I would a laptop, for example. And and I see sometimes my iPad to be like a big phone um, in that it's really intended to be a personal device. But I've never had to manage, uh, you know, more than two or three iPads at a time. So I, I, I've never seen how terrible apparently that management is. But I, I, I have been in a school for the last few months engaged in some research where there happens to be one-to-one iPads. And while the teachers in that building have come up with interesting and clever ways to manage one-to-one iPads in in that district, it's not really software-based as much as it is almost trial and error utilizing the consumer-level management 
um, that, that happens um, with with a regular iPad. And so they set it up in an interesting and clever way and then figured out there was a hole here or there's a hole there or there was too much control for the end user here or there. So it led to some shenanigans on the iPads. And, you know, it just seemed to me that 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 barrier was just so significant that I really can't imagine, um, you know, why you would look towards iPads when your know, Chromebooks are are just stupid easy to set up uh, from a, an IT management standpoint. Not to say kids didn't didn't really struggle with it. In fact, when in in my observations of of, of the district I'm in that has one to one iPads, the kids are great about it. They figure it out, and it's the adults having to. And, 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 and truthfully, the kids just have to use the iPad, right? They're not managing it. So I'm, I'm not making a kid adult piece there. But, you know, the kids themselves have figured out, you know, for example, the lack of keyboard. They have a bunch of hardware keyboards sitting around that um, the big, there's a big, I, I'm going to call it clunky, but I'm going to say it the nicest way, clunky iPad keyboard. It's also a stand from Belkin that you just plug it into the, um, plug it into the device and it turns into almost a full-size keyboard to work with. But I've seen fifth and sixth graders um, effortlessly move in and out of a keyboard mode with the iPad as they go through their assignments, you know, during the day. And I, I was amazed at how great and effortless the, the device was for kids. But the management part is, is just, just terrible. Uh, Martin, you mentioned that Apple has worked on this a bit uh, have you seen, like, I don't know what software Apple is, are they, are, are they pushing a particular software suite for management of iPads? Well, they, they have some of their own internal ones. They, I think the issue, the big issue is they've had, uh, since the Apple's release of the iPad, I believe in 2010, they've had, you know, essentially eight years to get this right. And each time they come closer to offering us maybe the dozen features we want, and a simplistic interface, but they aren't there right. enough that it, you know, we aren't finally relaxing and saying, oh my gosh, good. We're finally here. We can, you know, deploy these. We can wipe them. We can monitor yep. them. We can, you know, w do whatever we need to. No, instead, they're really kind of wonky, clunky workaround ways. Um, I don't know what right. the latest does, but I hear, um, Many IT folks say, oh, there, there's something on the way, or there was a new release and it looks like this one might work. You know what? I think, you know, that ship sailed. It's, yeah. they had their shot at this. It should be simple. It should, it shouldn't have uh, a tremendous learning curve. It shouldn't have a heavy hardware overhead. Um, it should just be a very basic thing. In fact, it should be, you know, baked into the operating system. Right. But not the way iCloud and your um, your uh, Apple ID work, yeah. Because we've probably all run into problems there, you know. Until you're finally trying to shut things off, thinking, I don't know what, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what to do here. I just shut off the alert because right. I'm not going to pay for an extra service, and and it's not explaining it. And anyway, yeah. so I, I guess I, as far as the the, the software, yes, there are managements, there are third party managements. Uh, this shouldn't be an issue, and it is. Right. right. And I guess that's the, the biggest question that IT people have, and it's it's a fail. Yep, absolutely. And and the other point you made about price for a second, I, I've, I, I wouldn't say I've changed my tune about this, but I've started thinking about this a little bit differently. And it's not that I couldn't agree with you more that the hardware is worth it from Apple. I mean, it's, it's always top quality, beautiful, sturdy hardware that you get from Apple. And, and they stand behind that hardware, too. I mean, they offer warranties 
um, especially if you buy Apple Care, that that well exceed what, what Microsoft, for mm-hmm. example, will will sell you um, as part of of their you know uh, Microsoft branded lines of, of of laptops and phones. But the bottom line is is that what I've noticed in context of my day job is that schools hold on to computers, any computer they buy, way longer than I would. Not, and I'm not saying that that um, like I would if I were a tech director. It's I would as a personal user. Um, I turn over laptops fairly frequently, partly because I want to learn more about other types of op- laptops and operating systems, but. Um, I, you know, feel as though a five or six year old laptop is, is probably going to cost me more in time um, than it would do to purchase a new laptop. But if you think about it, you know, you can't really hold an iPad. Well, you can't hold an iPad for, for eight years, right? Because the eight year old iPads, iPad ones have been effectively eliminated from software upgrades um, and you can hack it together and, and put new stuff on. But the iPad one experience, an eight year old laptop is, is really kind of terrible now because it, it's the old version of the operating system. Most modern apps don't work on it. Whereas if you have even a, a relatively modest specced out business level computer from 2010 that can run to that can run windows 10. You can also update it to put, um, uh, more RAM or an SSD drive in and actually give it a pretty impressive amount of life. And I think that's a, that's a consideration here in that I think the personal keep of, of, a, of, of an iPad for six or seven years is different than what a school would want to do with that, where they might try to eke out nine or 10 years out of an iPad to the expense of the platform. Um, and I think that's, that's an important piece of it. I, I know Martin, at one point you had had a couple of iPad ones that you picked up cheaply that you were going to use in contact with classrooms. Are you maintaining an iPad one anymore? I have one and it's basically packed with music and we use it as yep. a music server in the living room. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And it's, yeah. it's so slow. Um, and I, part of that slowness is it's old, but part of that is that's how slow they used to run. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely true. Yep. Um, and it's funny you should mention that. I recently picked up an Apple TV, a new Apple TV, the thicker one that runs yeah. apps. And we had had an Apple TV two before. And, um, my wife and I decided that there was a few TV apps that were worth the, the purchase of, of a new one. And plus they're, they're dropping support for Apple TV two and yada, yada, yada. And I was blown away about how much crisper and faster that the new Apple TV was compared to the Apple TV two. And I never perceived the Apple TV two to be slow, but then you put it in the hands of the new hardware. And by the way, the, you know, the chips they're putting in those new Apple TVs are, you know, iPad level high oh, quality yeah. chips. You know, they run some pretty cool stuff. But, yeah, I think that's that that's a, a, a careful consideration here in regards to, you know, how long can you eke out service um, in an iPad? Um, one related note to that, and, and I, I feel like most tech directors I've heard that have kind of gone down this road figured this out um, on their own on the ground. But $100 Chromebooks will not be a lasting solution for a district. And um, you can buy a lot of brand new Chromebooks for 120, 150 bucks that are four or five years old, two or three years old even. Uh, so they're relatively modern, but they're slow. They have dated ARM chips in them. They have just two gigabytes of RAM and they'll be good for having a window open, maybe doing basic email, maybe a basic Google doc. But if you're gonna do any kind of multitasking at all, then you know you have to, you have to invest more than that. Um, and maybe you can eke out five or six years out of a six or seven hundred dollar Chromebook purchase. I don't think the Chromebooks 
that are five or six years old that started off being cheap alternatives to full laptops and iPads are going to have really any lasting effect in a district. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't know if that's always a bad thing, though, because I'm hoping that our tech needs evolve rapidly. Yeah. We're still, we're still you know, doing an awful lot of word processing um, and I guess maybe basic desktop publishing. Now we might do more slides, uh, especially with Google Drive. But I honestly think that we could be doing so much more. But, you know, we really have to have the hardware and the capabilities to do it before we realize just how important that is in education. Yep, absolutely. And then to your last point, and I hadn't thought about this, but I think you're right. I still, and by the way, um, Wes has joined us in the chat room, and he said that uh, I need to be defending Apple tonight. <laughs> um, and that's kind of why I brought Martin here, actually, to, to defend the, the honor of Apple. So um, the, the the part about the tablet, like that's that's actually interesting from not just the Apple standpoint to me, but like I don't really feel like, that when I've seen, let, let's let's use surfaces for as an mm -hmm. example. When I've seen implementations of surfaces, they're still just nifty laptops in the way they're being used. Like very rarely do I see people cast away the uh, the keyboard and you know use that in kind of the the uh, the same way that, for example, Wes might might say that you can use an iPad as a creation device. And I think that's an important point here for for two reasons. Number one, I do think. I mean, there's an obvious lure towards tablets for schools because they seem like they should be really great uh, 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 machines. But I think that's where the ever-evolving cell phone has a, a big impact here is that whereas the, the iPad of six or seven years ago seemed like the middle ground device between your laptop and your phone, the phone keeps getting more and more powerful and able to do more and more things. So why would you carry around a third device in addition to a laptop or... Uh, maybe the iPad becomes your laptop and the phone is still your go-to, but I don't see the tablet. Uh, I, the tablet, I wouldn't say it's dying, but I think it's going to be turned out to be more a niche device than maybe it was intended. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I think that if you look at the the scale of the tablet screen from the Apple Watch up to, say, the iPad Pro, you're, I don't know, you're getting kind of a a... a sort of a broad spectrum understanding of a touch interface. And then what do you do with it? And I obviously with something with a range, I mean, I don't know how many Apple watches fit on an iPad pro quite a few. Um, I do like that, that that's an exploration of this micro operating system that you that's touch, uh, touch enabled. I think that's going to be a very important space. So I like that where the Apple watch is going for that reason. But I guess I look at this and say, what, what really do we need this touch interface for? And right. my belief is we need it to disappear, to, to be invisible, to just do stuff without uh, any thought, without really any, any study, no instruction manuals. It just happens. Um, and then the size really doesn't matter unless you're you know, after a particular uh, functioning app. You just, right. it's, it's just this instantaneous stuff. Right. And I guess that's that's more the experience, I believe, that we're going towards with the tablets now. You know, so maybe it'll be a ball. Maybe it'll be a cube. You know, it, it doesn't have to be the flat screen. I think we can do a lot more with it once we figure out what the real benefit of that that environment actually is. At the moment, it's a mimic. 
a mimic of a notepad, a mimic of a laptop, a mimic of um, a book. Um, there's just a lot of things that, that, you know, we're kind of manipulating in this two-dimensional world. I think once we go three or once we go to, you know, kind of an assisted reality, right, the combination AR, VR, um, then that touch interface, um, even if it's, if it's not true touch, if it's, if it's just sensory, doesn't have to actually physically touch an object, but right. just being proximity, then I think we're going to open it up into what we really wish we could do. But we, right. we have trouble asking those questions now. So one thing, Martin, I'm going to make an observation here that that you may or may not think is correct about you, which is that um, you used to carry around a an iPad pretty regularly as mm-hmm. as seemingly your go-to device, and then recently you updated from an older Android phone, which was a uh, just a, a, a didn't need a phone case because you had your iPad everywhere. So yeah. the iPad did that. You know, you now have an iPhone seven. And mm-hmm. it seems like I'd never see you with your iPad anymore. So is the iPhone essentially replaced, at least when you're, you know, when you're about campus, is the iPhone replaced the iPad for you? Um, in a lot of ways, yeah, it has. Um, the iPad, uh, I use it, I'll bring it at times when I have to do kind of word processing, you know, where I have to be able to interact more with a, uh, a keyboard. Um, or if, I'm, if there's some media consumption, I, I find it difficult to read uh, you know, anything of substance on an iPhone. Um, but the simple, the, the sheer portability, and it, what's odd is I get all my text messages and even phone calls on my iPad as well. Right. You know, it, it, it's kind of a cross-platform. But just having it that fast, um, plus all my other stuff. Uh, so the iPhone, yeah, that's, that's a nice-sized everything. And I, you know, I, I believe that, that that would be an ideal thing to have every single thing on and maybe a little dock, you know, just something very simple that, you know, maybe even something that doesn't have to plug in. You just set it on it or near it, and it has the, uh, the connectivity. So I could use it with a large screen. I could use it with a small screen. I could use it with, you know, maybe some portable thing. And it just is. So it, it's like walking around with your own you your own CPU and and storage, you know your your hub, and it just ties into everything. Kind of like as Apple TV, you know. I, I I made a movie in front of my class the other day with, you know, just with my iPhone, and I edited it all with uh, my thumb, and then posted it up on YouTube. You know, I, I basically never it never left my hand, and I never used anything beyond my thumb to both film shoot and the, the entire filming process was actually up on the i um, up through the Apple TV up on a screen. So they could right. watch how I was filming all of this and right. watch all of the editing. I mean, it was, it was pretty cool. And I, some of it, I wasn't even in the room. They could watch where I was and what I was doing. <laughs> right. But uh, you know, when you're, you're dealing with that kind of power, you know, it comes down to, well, maybe it, I, maybe it's just goggles. You know, I don't, I don't carry around a larger screen. I just carry around a magnifier or I slide it into some kind of a, a headset or something. And then that becomes the, the large screen, but it's a little tough to share. But I, I really think that we, we're headed down that road and I'm all for it. And last, let's talk about for a minute. I think we maybe both have some ideas about this. So where, how can Apple get a foot back into schools? Uh, do you have any ideas on steps they could take? Um, to, to make more inroads with schools? I don't think Apple has lost its luster. I think, uh, is that what the, the article said? Was it? Right, yeah. Um, I think Apple is still 
you know, if you could just have one device, that'd probably be it. But once you throw cost in there or once you throw some of the other aspects that maybe people um, hold against Apple, then then they choose other things. But if everything was the same price, if it was all free, all sitting around, I believe everybody would go with an iPhone. Right. Um, so how do you get back into schools? I think price is going to be a big one. I think the management, it's, it comes down to those same three things. The management has to be there. And I think that, um, that Apple sometimes uh, spends, I believe, a little bit, uh, how to say this nicely to Apple, a little bit too much on the, the um, experience of the hardware design. I, I mean, I'm glad they do it. But honestly, you put it in a big, ugly rubber case and hand it to a fourth grader, yeah, it's great that it's got an amazing stainless steel mirror-polished apple on the back and, and flawless corners and a scratch-free back when it arrives and, you know, it says hello and all that. The kids need to get to work. Right. So I guess kind of like what they did with their eMac, uh, with their iBook, with right. eMate. You know, these kind of not the most gorgeous things, but they were pretty durable. They were, you know, just get to work with this thing. It's great stuff. You're going to do amazing things rather than, you know, basically handing the child a diamond and, you know, just or some beautiful piece of jewelry. Right. And I so I, I think that they could come out with a much less expensive version that has a, I mean, like kind of like what they did with the iPhone CE, I think, is that what they called it? You know, it was more plastic and only make it maybe rubbery and right. and just simplify it that way. It can be a little bit heavier with a bigger battery. You know, if, if you're going to sell a few million of them, that's enough to ramp up productivity in your, you know, your factory for it. Right. Because most companies don't get a chance to sell that number. And that's what you would be selling. Um, and you, you can run the same OS. You just have that interface that allows uh, management. I, I think that overnight would put Apple back into the schools because I honestly believe people want the apples in the schools. But, you know, the return on investment, the, you know, the fragility of it, the breaking, um, you know, things like that are, are a little bit tough to swallow when you're, when you're working with an enterprise or with kids. I'm still shocked that they gave up the white MacBook, uh, which I thought was a brilliant stroke um, on, on, on um, Apple's part. And in fact, when I first started working at the University of Montana, the thing I noticed was that there were more of those than there were other devices or other Apple devices. And in fact, that was, I think, the most popular laptop I saw, more popular than Dell, more popular than Lenovo, more popular than HP. Um, and I think that that universities tend to be a little more balanced um, uh, Mac and, and, and PC as opposed to the more general population, which I think leans more towards PCs. But, um, yeah, I, I really think they made a mistake there. And, Martin, you had said something to me the other day um, that I thought was a great idea. Uh, why not keep the, the 11, the MacBook Air 11, yeah. you know, figure out which processes they could even keep the chip and, and the RAM a year or two back and turn that into a 499 device for schools. And I think that'd be a completely winning strategy. You know, I have to hand that thought, you know, ultimately to Wes, who's, um, who's thinking that, 
you know, how can, should they buy a, all the rest of the 11 inch MacBook Airs for right. their school and just stockpile them? I mean, it's an amazing piece of hardware. I've dropped them. I've yeah. them. Like, I just absolutely think it's a, it's a great design, but they've done all the hard stuff. Right. If they froze it in time now, honestly, it would be good for another decade. Yeah. And or or just do what they, they they tend to do. Keep the processor two or three years old. Keep the price down. Keep you know because I think they could you know add two add two gigs of RAM every two or three years. So you know four, then six, then eight, then ten, then twelve, and then you know get use an i five processor that's one or two generations back, which they're practically giving away, and you'd be good to go. Yeah, I agree. And to me, that that would drop them right back into the schools. Even you know, and you if you can if you spend four hundred on a Chromebook or five hundred or four ninety nine on a MacBook Air, I mean that seems like a no brainer right there. But especially if they're going to give away all of their software now, it sounds like their iLife Suite and their right. everything else, and you can run all the Google stuff on it. I mean, right? It's that's a it's a fabulous piece of equipment, right? Well, as much as much as I love a Chromebook, and you know, I'm carrying around a, a a fancy Chromebook now, right? Like this is a beautiful piece of hardware, and it's awesome, and it's fast, and the screen is beautiful. But the bottom line is, is that on you know on uh, we have a dated, a relatively dated uh, MacBook Air 13 in the office, and as it turns out, I can run Chrome well and everything else, and that and that's still I think a very persuasive argument against Chromebooks. It's it's a harder argument for me. When you're comparing the $300 Chromebook to the $300 Windows PC, because yeah. $300 Windows PC is, I mean, yeah, I could run Photoshop, but why would you want to on that hardware? Oh, like, yeah. You started up the beginning of the period, and the kids in the next period can can start to, to slowly edit their photos. So I think the, the, the comparison falls apart a bit. But, yeah, it's still better to have a full laptop over a Chromebook any day of the week. Yep, I agree. Okay, well, Apple, you've heard us. It's time for you to throw down the gauntlet and release those MacBook Airs for schools. So good luck with that, and um, hopefully that they are, they have to be thinking about this. And the article I wanted to talk about tonight, I couldn't find again, but there's a great expose on, on Apple a few weeks ago um, in, uh, I believe it was the National Public Radio had considered, you know, the stagnating Apple. And, you know, it's hard to say you're stagnating when you're the first or second, depending on which day of the week it is, largest company on earth. And they're still selling, you know, gazillions of iPhones. But it is clear to me that at least outside of the phone market, Apple is, is, is struggling a bit. Yeah, I think the phone market, I mean, I, you kind of wonder if they, they just took all their engineers and shoved them in a new building and said, make phones. That's where it's at. But yep. honestly, yeah, I, I, I think the phone market is, is fairly well saturated right now. And I think we are kind of coming back to some of the core, say, Apple values. Yeah. Absolutely. And when we arrive, we're like, ho hum, you know, where's the, where's the good stuff? Yep. You, you want to feel like the company really loves you. Yeah, that's like true. Amazing things, and it's harder to feel that. Yep, that's absolutely true. That's a good way of putting it. So, okay, well, um, second article I want to talk about tonight. This is from The Verge um, uh, yesterday, April 25th. Uh, but Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, is taking on fake news by starting his own online newspaper. And the online newspaper is called the Wiki Tribune. You can go to wikitribune.com. 
and get a uh, get a sense of that. They're starting off with 30 days of crowdfunding. Um, but basically, according to the Verge article, this new online publication, which is aimed at dealing with fake news, will bring together what the Verge calls professional journalists and a community of interested readers to produce and publish news stories. The site will be financed by a crowdfunding campaign focused on a range of issues, including U.S. politics, uh, uh, science, and technology subjects. And the, the site's core mantra will be a dedication to facts. And so um, um, I'm not entirely exactly sure what this looks like, but the Verge seems to suggest the model here is that they have 10 journalists, of which Wiki Tribune says three of them have already been hired, and they're going to use the same kind of crowdsourcing that um, – uh, you know, made the Wikipedia the, the source that it is here in 2017 in order to check facts and kind of have journalists working in tandem with um, the journalists uh, to, um, I'm sorry, journalists working in tandem with the crowds in order to create news that is, is verifiable so that you know it's not fake. So I guess to start off with, Martin, would you read the Wiki Tribune? You know, I, I first have to say that the the irony here is is pretty incredible. Can you imagine if you went, say, five years ago and said, in 10 years, Wikipedia will be the industry standard for accurate information? You know, and I would have said, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I think will happen. But everyone else was like, you know, don't even cite the thing. But uh, in answer to... The Wiki Tribune, um, if it lives up to the hype, absolutely. Sure. Uh, so, I do think, though, that there are extraneous philosophical forces at work that may cause the ability to say to, or to, to, to print facts an uphill battle. It's going to be tough because I think not that there are alternate facts. You know, I'm more of a fact-based person with my uh, science background, but I do think that, you know, if you look at a fact, it's like a singular occurrence with no predictive value. You have to combine the facts, and then you finally have to interpret what they mean. And in the, the aspect of science, which you would think is probably as cut and dry as things can get, you basically have a lot of tenets. One is you have to be able to be wrong. Another is there is no single person who um, can understand it at the, you know, and, and no one else can. That's impossible. Then, then it isn't science. You know, you can't be the only one. You know, you're, you're starting to dabble into religion or, or other fields. You know, and there, there are other, it, it has to be falsifiable. You have to be able to test it. You know, there, there are these things that require, that, are, that science requires, as I hopefully you went out to one of the science marches and demonstrated your support of facts. Um, but you really, it, it's unnerving to a lot of people when they realize that that is what science is all about. As you know with your research, you could specify a hypothesis, and then you try to prove that hypothesis wrong. It only takes one case, and it's wrong. But it takes... You know, it, it would take an infinite number to prove it correct. There, You can't have an infinite number of cases. Therefore, you go to a certain statistical point and say, okay, we're going to accept this. 
and it's kind of agreed upon, could it be wrong? Absolutely. In fact, it has to be able to be wrong. It must be able to be wrong. And if it's not, it's not science. It's not facts. Right. Um, so I do think that there's a lot of uh, a need for something like that. We're all looking to point towards something, and Wikipedia just might be that off-the-wall, bizarrely neutral force that doesn't have mainstream written all over it, that doesn't have a political slant written all over it, and it really doesn't have anything on it that, uh, you know, is is what we think of as, as a liberal or conservative slant or a, a bend. It, it doesn't seem to have an agenda, which I believe Jimmy Wales was interested in because of the kind of the, the Library of Alexandria look. It is a cross-section right. of what's available. Right. And that's that. Well, and the thing that I think is interesting about this is that um, um, the – so the Wikipedia is, you know, I has gone through many iterations of, of what perception of the source is. And I think it's actually now pretty well accepted in academia as an encyclopedia. Right? Let's be clear that, you know, people don't appreciate or want people citing the Wikipedia um, unless there's a reason to cite the Wikipedia. Right. Like mm -hmm. that you're looking for a crowdsource definition of something. But um, that acceptance, though, still comes at a bit of a cost in that. It seems to me that when you go um, and and see the uh, the Wikipedia article of someone that's recently recently passed away, they'll oftentimes lock the article if the figure was in any way controversial because the thing goes back and forth, right? And I think that's part of what makes me pause for a moment about a wiki news source that it seems to me that oftentimes controversial things that are covered in Wikipedia oftentimes are locked or they'll put a very clear disclaimer that that this is an ongoing breaking news event, which means that it's not that the, that the facts are so unclear that you shouldn't draw any conclusions from um, the, the existing text in the article. Whereas if they adopted that same type of workflow and process in a news source, you would always be reading something that is at best conjecture and not really a, a, what we could, would consider to be news or something that's, that's of any sort of authority. Well, have, so, have you looked up what they actually mean by locking it? You mean like in, in Wikipedia? Yeah. Um, it locks it from edits, doesn't it? Yeah, except that oh. what they if you look at what locking actually is in a Wikipedia uh, or of a Wikipedia article, it is amazingly thin, shockingly thin. Uh, I believe, like, uh, I, I looked it up, I think when uh, there was a celebrity death, I can't remember what it was, and locking was a, a couple days. And who was locked out? People who essentially had not written um, in Wikipedia, like, in the last 10 days, right. which yeah. would be all the people you wouldn't, you know, maybe want jumping in at that point. Right. But it was pretty thin and the dust had to settle. And the dust literally that's like two days. Let's 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 hold off before we, you know, open it up again. So yeah, is it locked out? But everyone's going to it at that moment. Right. Yeah. And that moment is, you know, it's it's a viral moment. It only lasts, you know, a day. Right. And then it's over. Well they locked it up for say that 28 or 48 hour period from the average person wandering in. That's, I mean, that's not much of a lock right. by any standards. In fact, it's almost the cycle time of a print newspaper. Right. 
And we all know that those are pretty much outdated the moment the press rolls. Right. So, you know, I, I, I guess I would have to side on Wikipedia's, um, you know, uh, uh, policy there. Yeah, everyone calm down for a second. I mean, it's not like whether or not we should run to a bomb shelter. It's, right. You know, that's different. It's whether or not we've got a clear picture of, say, what Trump's tax reform uh, proposal looks like. Everyone just knock it off for a second, and we'll we'll talk about this in a day or two. Right. Well, by then, the people who don't care are gone. I mean, the people who, who have a who don't care but just want to make trouble are gone. Everyone else now can have a logical discussion, hopefully. Well, and, and you know, and if it ends up being kind of a way to to uh, you know, try to even give in, in comments, for example, both sides of facts, both sides of facts, or I guess facts and alternative facts, to borrow a moniker from earlier this year, yeah. you know, that that does provide an opportunity. And you know, if they could avoid the trolling nature of you know online comments, um, that you know, or figure out a clever way to make that interchange and, and, and discussion productive instead of kind of, you know, warring trolls, then I'd love to see them play with the model a bit. And, you know, I got to say, um, and, and Wes made a comment that in the, uh, um, the chat room about um, uh, that there's still a lot of bias against the Wikipedia amongst um, academics and, and classroom teachers. And I, I agree that that's the case. And I think there's a, uh, I have a sadness about that because if, if used in a, in a proper place, the Wikipedia is a really wonderful resource, a wonderful tool. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, if we could find a way to create more interactive journalism um, using a platform like this, I think it can only help uh, help the journalism industry. Um, uh, Martin probably knows this from 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 living in Missoula, but uh, very recently, the Missoulian, uh, which is the newspaper of record in um, Missoula, Montana, recently turned off comments. Um, and I had actually uh, had lobbied for that to the Missoulian and, and has my, my, my wife and, and some friends of ours that were kind of tired of the troll fest at the bottom of, of every Missoulian article. And, um, you know, I, I, I did wrestle a bit with the notion of whether or not that, that it's, it's, that that's chilling the speech at all. But the bottom line was is that you don't have a right to comment at the bottom of a newspaper mm -hmm. in 2017, you can start your own newspaper online and say whatever you'd like to, um, and be protected fully with free speech. But if we could find a way to have a positive interaction um, regarding news from legitimate points of view, and maybe I'm dreaming that that's a possibility, um, you know, witness, um, you know, the, the various message boards have turned quite sour and negative. Reddit, Reddit is a good example of that. It's great in the tech side of it, but you have the politics side of, of um, Reddit, and it's like, you know, seeing a thousand times worse uh, in comment sections. You know, I think that's an interesting piece of this. So I hope, if nothing else, we can find a way to, to create more clever ways to have people interact in regards to factual notions of news. Yeah, that would be good. If you could solve that riddle, I'd love to know. And I, I did have a friend who worked for the Missoulian who described, basically, they were taking shifts trying to deal with all of the comments. Um, and, you know, most of them have to get thrown out. Yep. And then, you know, they're, they're like comment heroes in there that people go to see. They know somebody, you know, with, with a certain name is going to post something from a certain angle and they want to see how it's uh, responded to. I, I, I just guess I, I look at that as, as kind of a performance art for some people. <laughs> um, and then I think there's a lot of people that are looking for validation, yeah. you know, not necessarily agreement, but, but 
validation that somebody else said, yeah, what he said or ditto or, you know, more of that or plus one or whatever, just that what you, you contributed has value. Right. And I think that they're, you know, it, it, I guess it's kind of sad if that's really where you're getting your, your, your feelings of contributing, but you know, it, it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, um, I, I would think that, that, you know, one thing that, that journalism in, in, on the internet allows is an unlimited letter to the editor section. And obviously you want to vet a letter to the editor, but you know, that's a way you could be doing more of that and whether or not, you know, newspaper choose to, that's a different story, but you know, the, I, I'm not surprised to hear that the Missoulian was, was struggling with moderating comments and then, um, you know, and they're not able, I mean, how do you, even if a comment's inflammatory, that doesn't mean it's wrong. So, you know, it, it's, it's just a very interesting phenomenon, I think, uh, regarding journalism in 2007. Well, and it also depended on when you submitted the comment, depending on who was, you know, looking at the computer screen. There were people who'd let stuff go and other people who would cut it all off and they would, there would be a political bend. You know, they don't right. like what someone's saying and well, who's going to check the moderator? So, but absolutely, I, I, I agree with you that I don't think it belongs anymore, at least in this iteration. And they, I've seen a lot of stories on the Missoula where I was very thankful there were no comments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know what was going to happen. Well, and you and I have an interesting perspective, too. We're both University of Montana employees, and University of Montana has been through a, a number of public controversies in the past decade. And um, it's hard to watch the future of our employer debated in the comments section when fewer than 10% of the commenters really understood some of the factors that were the push-pull factors that are impacting the day-to-day -day issues at the U. And that, that was particularly troubling to me because, um, you know, it, 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 whatever happens to be going on on our, on, on, on our campus, the bottom line is it's way, it's, it's, it's way more complicated and, 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 and a universe away from, you know, the college model is dying or liberal universities have no future in, in, in the Western civilization and all of the terrible, terrible, terrible rhetoric that was the bottom of a lot of those articles. And um, I think that that was one of the main reasons why that I, I cheered um, the ridding of public comments from that particular source. Mm -hmm. Okay, Wes, or you're not Wes. Um, not Wes, Wes in the chat room. Hi, Martin. How you doing tonight? Um, the, <laughs> let's let's take up one more of these. And sure, uh, Wes, go ahead. Uh, sure, uh, Wes. We're calling <laughs> each other Wes for the rest of the night. Um, you want to talk about robots? You want to talk about the problem of disruption? Or you want to talk about podcasting? Uh, well, let's talk about robots. Okay. So really interesting article in Recode from April 25th that says that basically because we've been bombarded with um, Hollywood portrayals of robots, um, we uh, have a, um, um, a skewed view of, of robots and whether you have the, whether you have the, the view that they are, um, uh, uh, wonderfully uh, friendly or they're terrible, terrible and evil that we've been given a like a too um, edgy version in our head of robots. And um, 
fortunately or unfortunately, it is skewing our ability to be objective about them. So I guess I'd start off with you, Martin. What is your perception of robots? Are they the best thing ever, or are they going to ruin the world? Is there an in-between choice? Well, not according to Hollywood. Okay. uh, Well, I'm going to start out with the best thing ever then. Okay, great. Me too. Um, So (laughs) it's interesting. Next? Yeah, next. Okay, next article. Podcasting. Awesome or not? Um, Awesome. Let's go. Obviously, uh, we say in a podcast. Um, Actually, we should do a lightning round sometime. Just say good or bad on things. Like iPhone 7, bad. iPhone 7, good. Yeah, there you go. Um, so it, it's interesting because I think they're right. Best because, iPhone I've ever had. Well, that's that's very true, isn't it? So factually <laughs> true. That's not fake news at all. So, um, so the article is super interesting because that's that's correct, right? Like I when I hear robot, I don't think of what ninety nine percent of robots are, which is anywhere from simple to complex machines that complete tasks. I think of R two D two, and I think of Rosie on the Jetsons, and I think of. Um, you know, um, uh, maybe faceless robots like Hal in, in, in uh, 2001. And so that's, it's difficult for me to, to get beyond those perceptions. But I think, well, the article makes the point that we either we see them too positively or too negatively, and that doesn't make us objective. But I think the part of the problem with that phenomenon is that we underestimate the impact because we have a Hollywood view of them. So for those that believe that robots are evil, right, they're thinking of Terminator sort of robots where they're going to come to life and, and go for our throats. And that's that's all well and good, but the biggest risk of a robot may not be going for our throats. It may be it's going for our jobs or it's going for our seem to be um, a slowly evolving economy. And so that that's the part that, that I perceive to be most interesting of this is that the word robot may actually be too loaded to describe this phenomenon. So um, Martin robots, Question mark? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, would you go to a Hollywood movie about an assembly line? Watching <laughs> a robot weld a door over and over for like 16 hours a day? Right, right, right. Yeah, it, it, it fired some guy. You see the guy for a second, and then it's yeah. done, right? Like, yeah, that's, that's a good point. But I guess I, I would have to look at this uh, kind of similar to how I look at zombies. Right. Um. And I tend to look at zombies or the zombie genre as a metaphor for something. Right. And the robots represent um, not only a, a uh, maybe a, a low-skilled worker or even a, a higher-skilled worker, but they also represent something that may not uh, have or uh, – no, it doesn't may not. It absolutely does not have an appreciation for the human, the human right. condition – um, the challenges of life, families, the ability to, you know, rationalize, um, to feel empathy, compassion, things like that. So, you know, it's just, the, it's just a, the machine. And we've been dealing with machines, you know, in their, their, you know, Hollywood side and also for their, uh, you know, in, in literature, in song, et cetera, as, as just this, the antithesis of human. Right. So I would say, okay, let's leverage that. If you've got a mindless, you know, job, a repetitive job that isn't healthy, 
And, um, you know, somebody's going to do it because of the money, but it's not necessarily good for them as a person. To me, that's an ideal, um, you know, uh, the ideal job for a robot because you can, you don't have to feel bad that they're doing this repetitive, mindless task for eight hours a day. Right. So I guess I, I like it from, uh, for that reason. On the other hand, uh, you know, when we start getting into the concept of drones or smart, um, smart robots or robots with a, a degree of AI that may have some, some decision making that could affect people, you know, that's where it gets, it gets pretty tricky. You know, if, uh, the battlefield robot does exist, whether, you know, is it deployed not autonomously? I think that will come. I think that will be a, a fairly new thing. And maybe, you know, it, it may bring, bring back the, um, the uniform issue. You know, ideally the uniform was to decide who is on which side. Right. You know, so, you know, maybe you have to, you have to pick a badge and you wear it. And then depending on which robot was in the house was the one that was going to come after you or protect you, you know, which, is going to create us uh, as a as a culture to have to make some decisions. We can't play both sides. We can't ignore an issue. If you're going to release something autonomous, um, that's going to going to react depending on which side you're on. Right. You know. So I I I, I look at it that way. I you know, in using the zombie mentality again, I think the robots also allow us uh, in many ways to explore something that's human like but not human. Right. You know, that we can feel bad that this situation occurred, but we don't feel bad for that particular organism or that particular robot. Right. Um, so it allows us to explore what that feels like. I mean, I, you've seen Spielberg's movie AI, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that that to me was one of the most awful movies I've ever seen because it was so hard to deal with the ending. Right. You know, I was just awful that way. It went awful in a very good way, if you can have that oxymoron. Right. I mean, it's still, I don't even want to look at the cover, you know, of the, or the, the, the poster for the movie. It was, right. it really opened up some terrible questions. Right. I, I mean, which is exactly why Spielberg did it. Right. And um, I should, I should also note that, that uh, Martin appropriately did not spoil the movie for you if you haven't seen it. So, um, the, 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 the other piece of this too is that I think that that uh, something that you had mentioned earlier that that is true about other genres of um, of Hollywood machinations is that um, you know we didn't start getting really fired up about aliens until the early Cold War. There was you know, lots of, of evidence of of, of per- perceived alien spottings for the 2000 years before the 1950s but it wasn't until the cold war that we had an amazing ramp up of of alien sightings in the united states and and i and i actually know some folks smart awesome um very rational folks that that do believe that there's a mass cover-up of 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 um alien landings and alien sightings in the united states but there it's certainly true that the ramp of that started happening at the same time we, we had this massive cold war that that very culturally impacted our um, uh, uh, or substantially impacted the, the cultural evolution of the United States and, and, and Western Europe. And so, uh, you know, we, we respond to the trends that exist in our day. You know, I, War of the Worlds, do you know when H.G. Wells wrote that? 
1920-something? No, it was in the 1800s. Was it that far back? Yeah, 1897 was when it was uh, serialized. Yeah, that's wow. You knew that day. You knew that day off the top of your head. Impressive. So, uh, well, I mean, yeah. So you could get the, into the Cold War idea. I do think yeah. that the the threat from aliens mirrors our technology, and you can see that from the you know the primitiveness of War of the Worlds to you know uh, the day the Earth stood still to contact and so on, where as we progress in our our uh, astrophysics, basically, and our understanding right. of the universe, we can then raise the bar of the alien. But all of this, I mean, 1897, you know, it's roughly a century ago. You know, right. a century and a few years. Yep. So that's absolutely unmeasurable in universal time. Right, absolutely. I mean, you, the time of the universe. So the alien in 1897 was exactly the same as the alien in in 2017, right. as far as the alien is concerned, being somebody who could travel the vast distances of space and have all these high-tech things. But, we, you know, I guess we see kind of our interpretation of it mirror our current society. Right, absolutely. Yep. So, I, I, you know, I, I do think, again, that's a great metaphor for it. I love aliens. I would love for aliens to be real. But... You know, as the uh, cell phone camera has demonstrated that the number of alien abductions and alien photographs is just, it's dive-bombed. When was the last time one was in the newspaper? You know, or anything? It's I hadn't thought about that. That is very interesting. Where Where's the video? I mean, you, you get a meteorite or a meteor flying across any town USA. You're going to catch it on cell phone cameras. You're going to catch it on ATM cameras, parking lot cameras, dashboard cameras. You know, we're going to have dozens of artifacts of it. So somebody gets abducted. Yeah, they're the, they're the only people in the world without a cell phone. You know, that's how they were chosen. Or they took it, but none of the pictures worked. I mean, you can't do anything, you know, now without probably winding up on YouTube. Yeah. You know, how many how many videos of a person being dragged off an airliner were there? You know, it wasn't just one. You know, so the idea of aliens, I, I, I wish, but, you know, you look at it and say it's, you know, as, as our tech increases, our personal tech, the instances of observations have decreased. Same wow. with Bigfoot, same with Loch Ness Monster, you know, because the proof should be there, and it's not. Right. You know, uh, because... I hadn't thought about that, but uh, sorry, it's very interesting. So sorry to spoil that one. Yeah, <laughs> speaking of spoiler alert. So, okay, well, it's that time in the episode now where we talk about our geeks of the week. Martin, would you do us the honors to talk about your geek of the week, sir? Sure. It's the Milwaukee Tick. How about that? Huh? And what what is so, that? Milwaukee. It's kind of one of my favorite tech companies. They they make stuff like this. What is this? What? That's a drill. It's a drill. Okay, yeah. And they make a series of batteries, um, and the batteries, like in this case, actually have um, chips in them. And, in fact, you can get a Bluetooth app that will monitor the batteries. And there are components like this. Um, this is my, my cell phone battery. So I take this thing, which has a, um, uh, a USB port, and I slide it on. And now I've got 
you know, a tremendously powerful cell phone battery. I have other ones like this um, that that use uh, Milwaukee Tool batteries. There's a power port and a USB. So I have a huge amount of, of external power available. But that's not my geek. My geek is uh, what's called the uh, the tick. And what it is is Milwaukee um, uh, has this little black kind of a, a, a circular object. Um, I put a link in the, the show notes that basically is a Bluetooth um, signal emitter. And it runs about a year on a battery. And you can bolt this thing onto something. You can glue it on. You can screw it into it, whatever it is. And it, it is a it, just a Bluetooth emitter. So when you run the um, the uh, the app that Milwaukee created to control this, and I assume there's going to be better stuff because the app's getting marginal reviews. Um, basically, it tells you where it is, and oh. it can also apparently um, kind of mesh through other Milwaukee apps. So if a Milwaukee app is on a phone and it's running, say, at a construction site or a school, it sends the signal um, of the tick, which has a, a, a specific ID, to the Milwaukee servers, and the servers then can ping back to you saying, where is this thing? So it isn't just to find it. It's if it gets stolen, it'll show up on a network somewhere or show up on a phone. Um, and so you can track the hardware down. But... Those have been around. I mean, we've had tile and a few yeah. other things. This thing, uh, oddly, you can buy one for twenty bucks, or you can buy four for a hundred. So we need to work on their math. Um, but it's uh, a near indestructible thing that you buy in bulk, um, kind of for asset management. Right. And it isn't necessarily this thing that that I'm I'm really thrilled about. It's that. It's it's coming to a Home Depot near you, right? You know, so you could actually walk in and you you can buy them in bulk and stick them on all kinds of things. You just log, just register the numbers, and then you've got a a fairly sophisticated asset management. I think a year is a little short on battery. Maybe it should have a way to recharge it, but that I mean, it's also tremendously durable. So, I guess I see this being miniaturized and maybe simplified a little bit and maybe even run a universal um, kind of app API so you can use all kinds of different apps to track this stuff, whether it's your car keys or your digital camera. Does anyone use one of those anymore? Digital cameras? Yeah. I've got one in a box somewhere. I don't know. Well, uh, insert something cool here, you know, and you just have the um, right. this, this asset management thing on it. Yeah. That's one of my geeks of the week. I have another. Oh, go for it. Um, uh, the second one, which hasn't been really publicized yet, and I couldn't find a uh, school-appropriate link for it, um, but what it is is it, uh, there's a, some companies, um, and this is um, uh, a Leopold, this is called an LTO, Leopold Thermal Imager Tracker, um, and what this thing actually is is a, a thermal in, a thermal uh, imager that allows you to see um, in all sorts of different um, let me toggle through here um, uh, all kinds of different thermal um, potentials they call them filters 
So you can see in the dark, basically, because you're seeing the infrared. It's not night vision. It's thermal imaging. Um, but this particular thing, uh, let me point it at my face. See that? You know? Yep. Open my mouth. <laughs> anyway, this kind of a thermal imager, um, this was released in January. They have a new one out that isn't released yet that is about a third the price and does weigh more. This is kind of a standalone device. It's got a thermal thermal camera on one side and a screen on the other, and that's it. it you, you can't do anything else with it. The new one looks more like the form factor of a GPS. It has a larger screen. It's got a rechargeable battery. It's got a 300 lumen flashlight built into it, and it's got a digital camera system that allows you to take up to 2,000 images. Wow. And it's a lot cheaper. Um, they call that the, it's the Leopold LTO Quest. And uh, it isn't maybe that that's the best thing yet. It's that this kind of thermal imaging is getting not only affordable, but quite powerful in a small handheld form. So I assume ultimately, um, and I do have a thermal imager for my camera. I think I did it as a geek of the week a long time ago. Um, with the flare, but it, it should just be a choice. You know, you got slow-mo, you got time-lapse, you got video, you got square, you got panorama, you have thermal imaging, and that just fires up something else. You can see kind of in the past where things were. You can look at cars and see which ones are the most recently started or had been running. You can see through smoke. Um, I mean, there's some, some pretty cool uh, applications for it, but it's gone from being, you know, a $100,000 thing to a $50,000 thing to a $10,000 thing. You know, I, I, I noticed them in sporting goods stores when they got around $5,000. You know, they might get one in. And now this one dropped it under 1000 Still had a pretty high MSRP, but street price was maybe 700 bucks, six to 700 bucks. This one, the new LT, or the LTO uh, Quest, the street price on that might be 400 something for a powerful digital camera thermal imaging device. Anyway, so from a science background, to me that that's huge. We're going right. to be dropping down almost into the temperature measurements um, because things like this, this is a digital temperature sensor, Bluetooth, turn it on, pops up. I can, you know, 100 foot range. I can do all kinds of things with this, but um Five years ago or more, this, you know, it, it'd be hundreds of dollars for this kind of tech, you know, and now, um, there, there's this one and competitors and I mean, the price is just diving. So I assume these will be, I think this one's like 70 bucks. You can get them for 50 bucks. Pretty soon it'll be 40 bucks, 30, 20, you know, as this Bluetooth, um, sensor stuff gets a little bit more, um, uh, uh, traction in the public view and the sales go up. So to me, huge, absolutely huge. And now it's thermal imaging. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. What's yours? Um, I have a quick one. Um, and I only say it because it's such a great tool that, that, that puts more power in, in consumers, but creditkarma.com is a free credit report that you can get log in as long as many times as you'd like to, that will let you know of, of issues with your credit. Uh, there are lots of services that, that will sell you credit reports and you can get your credit report from all three of the major credit reporting agencies once a year for free. But um, 
since I've been a more of an adulting style adult in the last 10 years and cared about things like my credit, Credit Karma has been a really wonderful place to go and run a credit check on myself once a month and see anything that's 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 interesting. In fact, a couple of years ago, um, I had a credit card that was canceled because I had moved and forgot to change the address and they had sent me a new card and it was returned and they ultimately, you know, canceled the credit card and I was able to contact the company and make sure I was on good graces with them and I would never know otherwise. So creditkarma.com, um, great place to run a credit report on yourself that doesn't give you kind of the skeezy things that, for example, freecreditreport.com will, will actually charge you money to get your credit report. So a great opportunity for you to get a credit report free. So uh, we've exceeded our hour, but uh, what? That went having, fast. I know, I know. <laughs> wonderful having you here, Martin. Uh, I hope you'll come back and join us sometime. Why don't you tell us where people can find you? Well, they can find me. Uh, obviously, I work at the University of Montana. I have a web presence there. Uh, you can find me at the um, NSTA blog. I blog regularly for them about emerging technology, especially in what what's called the technology recommends section. Um, I write columns uh, about space science quite often. Uh, I have a run one called the Accretion Desk. It's on Meteorite Times. Um, and um, until May, uh, at NCCE which is Northwest Council for Computers in Education, because I haven't told you, Jason. Um, but I probably won't be back on the board for a while, uh, after their most recent election, which is fine. They need new blood. I've been there quite a while. Shocker, huh? I'm sorry to hear that, Dr. Horatio. Oh, no, actually, it's, election, it's so. totally fine. Uh, I was, uh, I don't know. In some ways, it's kind of a relief. It's less, less pressure, but sure. I do think that, uh, um, that the new fellow, when uh, there's an announcement is out, we'll do will will serve the board quite well. But I'll still have a, a strong NCCE presence. Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, this is the uh, EdTech Situation Room podcast. You can find out more about our Wednesday night uh, podcast broadcast at edtechsr.com, where you can also find links from this week's show um, and past archives. And we've been at this now 49 episodes between next week yeah, over and episode. It is over a year, wow. and uh, next year we'll be able to, or I'm sorry, next episode we'll be able to do whatever the 50th anniversary is of, of, of our, I guess it wouldn't be an anniversary, but 50th episode of the EdTech SR. So, golden episode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The golden episode will be uh, next week. So um, Dr. Fryer returns next week to the EdTech SR um, um, uh, podcast room. Um, where you can again find us every night, every Wednesday night live um, at edtechsr.com and on our YouTube channel. Uh, my name is Jason Neifer. I'm the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, and I'm also the Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence at NCCE. Um, and you can find me on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach or where I blog at blog.ncc.org. So wherever you happen to be around the world, thanks for listening, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Have a great morning, day, or evening. Thanks. Ciao.